Hello and welcome to these audio recordings from Project Echo, Westwick PHN Hub, COVID-19 Pandemic Response Echo Network Series. Series three, session three, and uh, welcome to the third session in our paediatric mini-series titled Back to School in Regional Victoria, part three. So this morning, we'll progress our conversations about returning to school with a focus on learning recovery and school re-engagement. So for many, the return to school has been a happy occasion with a return to routine, seeing friends and getting back to somewhat of a sense of normality. And it's been good for the kids as well. However, for many, returning to school might have been or continue to be a daunting experience. With old anxieties reawakened, new issues cropping up or a sense of um, struggle or falling behind as we take stock of learning lost. We expect for many initial jitters in the first week and first week back nerves will settle as life goes back to normal, while for others, targeted interventions may be required to mitigate the risk of long-term issues. So what are the issues anticipated and presenting? What plans do schools have to support students to get back on track? Who might need targeted interventions either through the school or in our communities? And what can we in primary care do to help? So we have got a packed agenda. I'm very excited about this morning's session. We have, of course, Kate Graham um, updating us about the health pathways and uh, Associate Professor Deb Friedman providing an infectious diseases and public health update. Um, we are joined this morning uh, by... Ms. Kat Saltz and Jan Smith from the Department of Education and Training, our uh, Bowen Regional Branch. And um, they'll be talking to us about some of the plans schools have in regards to re-engagement and learning recovery, but also schools as a service platform. Of course, there are some services available through schools that um, I'm really hoping that we'll get to know a little about this morning. Um, then we'll, this will be followed by a GP case presentation. Thank you to Dr. Stephen Brand from Drysdale Medical Village. Um, and then we'll move into a good old echo case discussion. Um, we are also joined this morning, I'm pleased to... Uh, uh, introduce and Billy um, come off the mic if you don't mind and I'll if Bo's there oh yes Bo's there as well thank you I'd like to introduce you to Billy Garvey pediatrician Billy um Billy do you mind just introducing yourself yeah good morning everyone um, I've been lucky to participate or listen in for a while now but my name is Billy and I'm a pediatrician at the Royal Children's but also doing some outreach in Western Vic in the Wimmera and Southern Mallee so it'd thank be really you. nice to to talk to you all Great. So thank you. So it's nice to have you here to um, help with that. Uh, be a panellist and also Billy's going to come back next week and present the work he's doing in Southern, um, in the Wimmera and Mallee next week. I'd also like to welcome Dr. Bo Egan. Bo is a psychiatrist in, uh, in Geelong. Bo, do you mind popping on the mic and just saying hi? Morning, everybody. My name is Dr. Bo Egan. I'm a psychiatrist both at Barwin Health and at the Raphael Service. Um, and yeah, it's a pleasure meeting everybody. Thank you, Bo. Thanks for joining yeah. us. Great. All right. And then we'll finish off with a PHN update on Head to Help um, with Mick Streif, Senior Lead of Mental Health and AOD. As always, we finish with our rapid five questions. Learning outcomes remain the same. It's about a community of practice and getting a chance to put policy into practice, understand resources and referral pathways. All right. So with that, I would like to now hand over to Kate Graham. Thank you, Kate. Good morning, everyone. Um, apologies to anyone who saw me sneeze, um, which is a good reminder that we have the hay fever pathways up there. Um, and that's a really, really important thing this season um, in terms of prevention for thunderstorm asthma. Um, the best prevention involves good management of asthma and good management of hay fever symptoms well in advance of the thunderstorm season. 
Um, the other things that we've been updating this week, we've updated to the new version of the guidelines from DHHS, which were released this week. So new information um, in that involves there's new definitions for outbreaks, just being a bit more inclusive of um, other high-risk groups. Um, there's also the definition for secondary close contacts and how to determine the timeframe for secondary close contacts. So that's a really important change in the latest guidance. Um, we've also added information in the aged care health pathway um, about the um, need for regular staff testing now that will be now occurring in regional Victoria for 100% of staff in public um, aged care facilities every month. Um, this, the federal government also has a program um, where they will be running some asymptomatic testing in aged care as well for staff, not residents. So that's about all for the updates from this week. Um, the other thing that I just quickly wanted to mention before I forget is that we've got some great disaster management pages. And while we're in the midst of the COVID disaster, um, it's a good time for practices to begin thinking about preparation for summer seasons for patients who may suffer from heat-related illness or be at risk of those kind of things. So having a look through the disaster management pages on Health Pathways is always a great plan. It's better to be prepared. So I'll hand it back to you, Vic. Okay, thank you very much, Kate. Okay, over to you, Deb. Good morning, everybody. Hello. Um, so quick update of where we're sitting at right now. There are obviously very small case numbers daily. Um, the 14-day average for metropolitan Melbourne is sitting at 6.2 and it's 0.4 for regional Victoria. In the last 14 days, there have still been 10 unknown cases. What that's still a marker of um, is that there is still community transmission and that we can't forget that that's still occurring. Um, even though schools have only been back for a very short time, already one school's been closed in Broadmeadows, so a single case can close a school and we're going to see more of this occurring as time goes on. The other new things that have taken place is because the CDC recently came out with information suggesting that they acknowledged that there were some occasions in which the virus could spread by aerosolisation or the airborne route, DHHS has changed all of its guidance and in the last kind of two days we're trying to change every single document to make sure that they all align to acknowledge that under certain circumstances it can spread via airborne. I just want to make very clear that the predominant mode of spread is droplet transmission with contact so contamination or handshaking or touching of surfaces. Airborne transmission is possible and it's much more likely in very poorly ventilated crowded spaces where you've got um, several infected people and that was one of the things that was demonstrated in some cohorted COVID situations during the height of the pandemic. So that's um, that, that part of it. Um, I just wanted to talk for a moment about secondary close contacts because um, Kate just brought it up before and I think it can be a little confusing. So if you've got a close contact, so if I'm infected and um, my, my husband becomes my close contact because he lives with me and fulfills the definition, then somebody who is a close contact of his, i.e. let's say it was a workmate who had spent more than 15 minutes face-to-face -face or more than two hours in the same room, could be a close contact of his, not mine, but his. Now, the really important thing in applying this definition is context and timing. 
What it means by that is it depends when my husband would have had contact with his workmate relative to when I became symptomatic, if that makes any sense. So if I became symptomatic today and he had not had contact with that person, you know, yet, um, in order for infection to have been transmitted, it's likely that that definition won't won't be relevant. So it really depends on context and the timing of things. Where it's absolutely most relevant is where there's a close contact who who lives in a household. So the more likely scenario is if Bianca and I were working together, and Bianca becomes my close contact because I'm infected. All of Bianca's family are really at risk when she's sitting in a home with them as a close contact because what we know is that household is the most likely place for transmission to take place. Even when people say they're isolating from other members of their family, it's extremely difficult to effectively isolate within a home. So that is the scenario where that secondary close contact becomes very relevant that's not the only one but it's just one example um, I just wanted to touch very briefly on what some have been some people have been talking about which was a post-COVID-19 syndrome or post-COVID-19 symptoms that people are getting I think there are two distinct entities here one of which is a post-critical care syndrome for people who've been very unwell and have had a critical illness and are often suffering the sequelae of a long intensive care stay. And that's going to be a combination of end organ damage because they're likely to get respiratory tract consequences due to lung scarring. There might also be some impact on renal function, liver function, and often there's either a myopathy or a neuropathy from a long intensive care stay. So when people have difficulties with any of their end organ function or they're weak or have lost balance, it's usually in the context of a post-critical care illness. The second entity that is becoming apparent is what they're now terming a post-COVID-19 syndrome, which is likened to other post-viral syndromes that can occur after influenza, after the first SARS, after Middle Eastern respiratory syndrome, where people have a reduced quality of life um, characterised by long-term fatigue and an inability to carry out ordinary activities. Some people have called this like chronic fatigue syndrome, and you know that chronic fatigue syndrome is now referred to as myalgic encephalitis, which recognises the fact that there's a lot of myalgias or muscle aches and pains and often headaches and other neurological features. Sorry for the noise in the background. Um, so that, that was sort of what I was going to say. I think the important thing is, is that um, there's more information emerging all the time In the whole scheme of things, we're very, very early on in trying to understand this. But what we know is that COVID is not a short illness, it's a long illness. And in people that have been studied, even in people who had mild illnesses, so they weren't hospitalised, a lot of them don't return to their usual health for many, many weeks and sometimes months. And the older that you are, especially if you have any underlying chronic diseases, that causes a much more prolonged illness. So about 50% of those over 50 have ongoing fatigue, cough and headache. And I think we should also remember that in the 
influenza pandemic in 1918, there was a lot of people with residual sequelae that were recognised, and I think that we are going to recognise some other sequelae to this um, pandemic. So I, I say watch this space in that regard. Thank you. Thank you very much, Deb. So now I'd like to hand over to Jan Smith and Kat Salt um, to present uh, an overview of what's happening in this space in schools at this time. So thank you very much, Kat. Thanks, Bianca. I'm hoping that's sharing okay that is, with you. Kat, Fantastic. Thank you. Great. So I'm Kat Salt. I'm the Area Executive Director for the Department of Education and Training for Barwon Area. So that's the 80 government schools across Barwon. Joining me today is Jan Smith, who's our Student Support Services Branch Manager. I'll just get Jan to give you a little bit of a wave. You had Claire Tobin, I understand, presenting to you in relation to the Department of Education and Training's uh, response plan and COVID safe planning in schools. And we were asked to talk to you today about the recovery planning for the Department of Education and schools and the priorities in relation to that. So there's a lot of information to go through. We're going to flick quickly through a lot of slides. Don't worry about the detail. As long as you get the high level content, the level of resourcing that's available will circulate key links to you afterwards. There are three priorities as students return on-site schooling, mental health and wellbeing, learning, and that's particularly supporting students to catch up who might have fallen behind across the key learning areas and transitions. So transition into kindergarten, transition between kinder and school, six to seven transitions, and then transition of students um, into pathways following year 12. There's already been significant investment by the department, of, by um, the government in education across Victoria. We do have statewide priorities. There are a whole number of strategies that have been implemented. We're not starting from scratch. And then there's additional investment to support these priorities over term four and into 2021. So in terms of the department's framework with mental health and wellbeing, um, we use this tiered approach to describe the supports that we provide in mental health and wellbeing with primary prevention, early intervention, intensive support. Um, now, some of this sits outside of the department, particularly in intensive support, but there's a lot of resourcing that the department strategies that the department's implementing at all of these levels within schools. We've also got supports in terms of staff mental health and wellbeing and workforce development to build their capacity. You probably can't see a lot of the detail here. As I said, don't worry too much about the detail. Really what we're wanting you to get a sense of is the level of support that is available within schools, within government schools across Victoria. So there's a lot of resourcing at the preventative level, respectful relationships, school-wide positive behaviours. There's early intervention across early childhood, primary and secondary. Uh, there are new mental health practitioners in secondary schools as well. Um, and then there are some intensive supports too. Then we've got additional support 
an additional investment that's occurring over term four and over 2021 to address those priority areas. There's a whole lot of advice and tip sheets and I'll quickly show you these, but then we'll send you the links afterwards. And as I said, the key takeaway is really just for you having a, a sort of a broad understanding of the level of focus and investment and support that's available. So we're continuing to roll out the mental health initiative across secondary schools, which puts a mental health practitioner in every secondary school. There's expansion of headspace. There's a an expansion of a, a mental health in primary schools pilot. There are mental health practitioners being placed into uh, specialist schools as well. And we're expanding Navigator, which provides case management support to students who are at risk of disengagement. So there are a huge number of resources and guidance that have been developed by the department to support schools, to support students, and to support parents and carers too. So just quickly, there's a lot of advice around supporting students' mental health. There's a lot of activities, conversation starters. There are curriculum resources around resilience, rights, respectful relationships. Now, these are being provided to all schools and the area teams are supporting implementation with these within schools. There's also students at risk planning tool. Uh, there's an early intervention guide. There's a check-in resource that's just been developed for students to identify, for teachers to identify students who are at risk and to know what pathways um, to refer them to. And there are departmental supports. So we've got key contacts. Jane will talk a little bit about that. Mental health practitioners, there's family violence support, and we also fund headspace support within schools too. Then there's a lot of capability building that's going on and we've been rolling this out in terms of safe minds, suicide risk continuum training for teachers, for wellbeing staff within schools, suicide prevention, managing trauma. As I said, don't worry too much about the detail in these slides. It's to give you that high level overview. We'll circulate. If you're interested, you can then click on these links and look at some of the detail later. There's also guidance and support that's really clear around um, PROTECT, which is around identifying and responding to child abuse and family violence. And again, we provide area support to schools around that as well. There's lots of dedicated resources too. So there's mindfulness resources, hope videos for students. There's a dedicated web page for students. And there are mental, there are wellbeing resources that have been developed with Melbourne Football Club and Kick It with uh, Victory with Melbourne Victory Football Club as well. Then there's lots of parent resources and we've been running parent information sessions too um, and podcasts that parents have joined. So in terms of Barwon area, I'll just hand over to Jan just to talk a little bit. So this is a bit about business as usual. So we like an acronym in the department. So student support services, visiting teachers, career education support officers, the student wellbeing engagement office of disability coordinator. So they're all um, teams that are in place all of the time. So they're still operating as usual. We also have respectful relationships and school-wide positive behaviour support. Kat mentioned the mental health practitioner initiative. So all of our secondary schools have mental health practitioner and the Geelong project also continues to provide support to schools. Um, we also have a group that meets, um, a multidisciplinary team that meets with any, if anyone has really complex cases. 
Um, some of the additional things that we've put in place, Kat mentioned the health wellbeing key contact. So every school um, has a health wellbeing key contact. So if they've got any concerns regarding any students, they can contact that. So I'm the health wellbeing key contact for about 14 schools. So they come directly to me and I help them problem solve. Um, we've Kat's talked a bit about the mental health um, work that we've been doing. We've got to, um, so one of the key pieces of work that we've undertaken this in this during this time is a partnership with Headspace Catholic and Independent Schools. We had a number of deaths by suicide, unfortunately. So we pulled together as a group, and that's proved to be really helpful in terms of providing information information to parents. Uh, we've had school holiday response teams and school holiday hubs. Some schools, individual schools were identified as needing particular additional support. So we've had a team working with them as well. Um, and we've also got, um, we've got some ongoing work with PHN to support the suicide prevention pilot strategy. So I guess just in terms of that, it's really just about you being aware of the level of support that can be provided. Um, and, you know, if if possible, seeking permission from families to liaise with schools so that you're aware of the other supports that are in place, because there often will be a large engagement from a number of people within the school. And if there are attendance issues, encouraging families to talk to the school. I'm not going to go into detail in this, but I, I know there's a significant investment as well in terms of health and wellbeing support for schools. So there are mental health procedures and guides. There are OCH violence and aggression policies and procedures. We've got a principal health and wellbeing strategy, which includes mentoring, principal health checks, wellbeing supervision. The OHS advisory services manager assist conflict resolution within that. Employee assistance, we've got a whole series of wellbeing webinars that have been really well accessed by staff too in a virtual gym. So if staff, I guess, are reporting to you with concerns, um, again, encouraging them to speak with their principal or assistant principal, we've got a lot of support that is available for staff, um, providing that mental health care plan is appropriate and referring to external agencies. The second priority is around learning. I'm not going to go into as much detail on this, um, but there's already been significant investment in early years, in rolling out three-year-old kinder school readiness funding. All of these will support students to catch up and provide more support to students. And there's additional investment to ensure that kindergarten remains free for most families um, for term four this year. Schools already get lots of funding. There's strategies already in place to support students to catch up and provide them with support to meet their learning needs. Um, things like our Middle Years Lit and Noom that supports students who are below national minimum standard, provides additional support to them. Those things will be continuing. But in addition, um, there's been an investment of 2.5 million in what's called catch-up funding, which will employ 4,100 tutors um, as part of that learning catch-up initiative who'll provide support in small groups to students. We're working up the modelling in relation to this and you might be aware there's also for students who are undertaking VCE, VET and VCAL, there's a whole lot of guidance for schools around considering educational disadvantage for all of those students um, in terms of their scores and weightings. 
So again, if families have got concerns about their child's learning, if they've fallen behind, encourage them to talk to the schools and reassure families that schools have got strategies in place. If parents are worried about students moving from kinder to school, schools will be ready for kids at whatever level they come in with to provide them with support. Um, you know, we know that, and I'll move on to transitions really quickly because I know we're running out of time. Um, but so just in terms of that other priority around transitions, we've provided lots of parent information sessions about the supports that are available. Um, there's additional support and guidance for foundation teachers. There's professional learning for foundation teachers as well. There's guidance again around six to seven transitions and supports and tools for schools, for parents, for students. And just there's guidance also around repeating a year level. And just that, you know, that research indicates that repeating a year level is not usually beneficial and can have negative impact on wellbeing, engagement and achievement outcomes. So again, just encouraging families to talk to schools if they've got concerns around learning in the first instance. There's right. also additional supports for NDIA with post-school. Um, so again, just that what you can do is really just that encouraging families to talk to kindergartens and schools. And under what circumstances, Kat, thank you very much. I really enjoyed all of your um, very practical suggestions at the end of each session. Section. Do you think there's ever a role for a GP to get in touch with the school themselves? Um, and if so, you know, who would be the key contact that they would approach in schools if they were wanting to unlock some of these services? It's a good question. And yes, I mean, obviously, with families' permission, and I appreciate that, you know, your time's often pressing and mm. it can be a challenge um, to find the time. But schools would be more than happy to have contact. In different schools, um, they have different wellbeing structures. So if the concerns around learning, obviously it's the year level coordinator or one of the APs. If it relates to wellbeing, for some schools, a well, an AP might have the lead or it could be um, a leading teacher who's got the lead in terms of wellbeing. So we just suggest contacting the school saying you're wanting to have a discussion around wellbeing um, in relation to a particular student is who's got the lead within the school. Okay, great. And an AP is an assistant principal. Oh, Something sorry. Thank you. I'm a doctor in school is not a problem. Thank you very much, Kat. So what I'm going to do now is throw to Steve Brand. So Steve, um, thank you. Would you um, now I'd love to hear you present your case. Thanks, Steve. I'm presenting a case of a 16-year-old um, boy that I um, first saw at the beginning, um, beginning of August. He first saw one of the GPs in our clinic at the, um, on the Ballerine Peninsula. And um, there was an appointment made by mum and, and this young boy came in and, and spoke with um, one of our female GPs and disclosed that the information was that he'd been down for a long time, but in that particular week, he'd, um, he'd really, his mood had dropped right down. He'd been staying home from school, anxious about going to school, denied any particular precipitant year 10 uh, and stated that he wasn't enjoying any part of school and hadn't felt that way since high school. Um, in regards to his um, family history, there is a um, history through the other kids of some issues um, with um, a sister aged 18 who'd left school in year 12 um, after four weeks because of bullying and she's now studying a mental health course. Another sister who's aged 17 who's currently doing year 12 
at the same school as the client that I'm seeing, who's quite independent, but also is experiencing significant anxiety. But she's been very self-motivated and, and um, has uh, attended Headspace under her own uh, under her own steam and is currently um, being having counselling there and she's also taking some antidepressant medication at the moment. Um, Mum and Dad both um, are at home um, and they both are working from home at the moment. Um, he's currently attending Year 10 um, at a school on the Bellarine, but his history through school involves having moved a fair amount of time with Dad's role. They had moved... Um, from Western Australia to Victoria and then around the country areas. And so his school exposure was quite varied in that he had some really um, small schools that he attended, which he seemed to function reasonably well in. But when he went into larger schools, he didn't particularly like it um, and found, uh, found discomfort whilst attending. Um, and at the end of primary school, having been for two years at a sort of small small uh, sort of boutique, I'd call it a boutique state school. It's in, a, it's in sort of a, a hamlet type area on the, on the Bellarine. Um, he moved to a much larger school on the Bellarine with none of his friends transferring to that particular um, secondary school. So he'd been traveling okay once he started um, secondary school in regards to socializing. He'd um, been seeing friends at school and outside school and was playing sport um, in year seven and year eight, but in year nine, his friendships broke down and academically started to struggle. Um, he describes feeling quite alone. Um, he wasn't re reconnecting with people. He was becoming more withdrawn. And at the time that I saw him, he actually, on specific questioning, denied that there'd been any bullying um, at all. Subsequent to um, this, there was disclosure of bullying to... Um, to an OT counsellor who, are, who um, the family have engaged through me um, and it appears that that's had a significant impact on him. Mum also reports that she, her behaviour and her husband's behaviour was fairly stern with the kids and she, on reflection she feels that this probably hadn't been helpful and they've sort of changed the way they're, they're now interacting with, them, with, the, with the three younger, younger kids. So when I first saw him, we talked a bit about Depression and anxiety, and I said, look, here's, here's a bit of homework for you to do. Go to the Beyond Blue website, Headspace. I navigated it and showed him where to go, and I would see, see him next week. Um, when he came back the following week, um, we talked about um, who the teachers were at school and what was happening with school and the Zoom classes, and he was really struggling with Zoom classes. He found that he wasn't comfortable at all with visual exposure. He wasn't comfortable even with the audio exposure, uh, he found it very confronting and he said he would feel a lot comf more comfortable if he was just in a private one-on-one -on -one with the teacher. So, Steve, sorry, I'm going to um, jump in there for a sec just because of time. I know that, um, yeah, no worries. I wonder if you don't mind just um, summarising the management now today because it sounds yeah. like you've, um, yeah, you'd, at that point in time, you'd, um, um, you'd uh, got in touch with the school, you'd got in touch with the school and they'd made yeah, some Yeah, so with the school, so this... So the school has agreed with the Zoom that they would um, they would allow him to not be exposed on video, that he could use the chat directly to the teacher, so excluding the students from actually seeing him. Um, so so that that happened, but um, 
it couldn't happen all the time because he had to do some assessments and when they're doing assessments, they needed to be seen um, to be actually doing the work. So, so that became a problem. Mm. So, so, yeah, if you go ahead now and just summarise then the other yeah, steps so, management, we'll put that question so, to the group. So, yeah. sure. So we, so we had quite a long talk about it and I, and I referred him to see an OT council who specialises in seeing um, young people and young adults um, in school who um, assessed him and spent some time with him. And um, the information, the, the initial communication that I had was that um, this young lad was having extreme anxiety. One of the appointments were, was cancelled because of panic episode that, that occurred. Um, his, his baseline anxiety level, even when he says he's feeling good, is about six on 10, which goes up to eight to nine on 10 when he's at school. So, after some discussion, we talked about medication to try and settle his anxiety down because he wasn't receptive to any of the CBT techniques to reduce his anxiety. And um, we recently started him on some uh, fluvoxamine, started a low dose of 25 milligram, and that's only just recently been increased to 50 milligrams as he wasn't sleeping well. And um, I was hoping that that would sort of settle down a bit and allow him to then be more responsive to, to his counselling work. And so that it, I'll be following up with him today to see how thing, things are going. Now, Thank in you. The oh, sorry. OT, so just very briefly, so the OT's assessment was that um, he felt that, um, that, that this young man didn't have good self-reflection. He, he had very poor awareness of his thoughts. He had poor awareness of his feelings, that he didn't feel competent socially he felt that the prior prior bullying may have been related to that that he may have been a bit of a target as a result of that um and as a result of the way he was acting his parents actually elected to give him more space rather than engaging him and, and giving him more support they thought that they'd step back and, and not um and not be a sort of trigger point for his anxiety so the the goals at this stage are really to reduce his persistent anxiety, which is just preventing any movement um, in using any counselling techniques at this point. He's currently wanting to defer school, and so this is um, going to happen in the short term. He um, needs to have routine structures in his day, so he needs to get up at a particular time, needs to shower, needs to have regular meals. We also want him to do some exercise, so. Uh, to get out and walk and stuff, as is typical of this um, age group with these sorts of issues. He tends to go into the cave, so in his bedroom. He loves gaming, feels, um, and has attended one of the gaming um, in Belmont and felt that that was a great place for him to be and did interact with other people there quite well. But in fact, when um, it was assessed his anxiety level while he was there, it was still rating about 6 out of 10. So that concludes the panel presentation for this session. We'll bring you any other snippets that we can, but come along and join the discussion next week. Now let's now um, throw to Mick Struth. I see that you're on the line. Mick's now going to talk to us about uh, the PHN initiative, Head to Help. Thank you, Mick. In relation to the mental health hubs, the, um, the Commonwealth um, Government, through the Department of um, Health, um, approached the Victorian Primary Health Network's um, uh, being six primary health networks across Victoria um, in relation to the, um, the COVID-19 pandemic um, mental health response and asked us to come up with a um, response for 12 months 
um, to address the um, the surge in mental health, um, a number of people seeking help for mental health services as it relates as it relates to in Victoria. So the online support services such as Beyond Blue, eHeadspace, um, Kids Helpline, Lifeline, were in fact um, increasing, had increased numbers of um, occasions of service by about 40%. So um, there was $26.9 million put out. Um, we had three and a half weeks to design a model um, that was going to be accessible uh, right across the state. And there were three in each of the um, metropolitan PHN areas, two in each regional area. That means that in Western Victoria, we were to establish two uh, mental health hubs. So the, the Head to Help, um, it's been um, the communications and marketing team put together a branding approach. So it's been identified as a Head to Help um, services. And as you can see in this slide, it um, anyone can contact the Head to Help services. There is a 1800 595 212 telephone number that anybody can can contact. Um, it could be a GP referring somebody, it could be a person seeking help, it could be somebody um, requesting how they can access some assistance. There is a credential mental health professional at the end of that phone. Um, the way it works is that the system is a statewide system. It is routed to the local um, provider. In Western Victoria, that means that we have buddied up with Northwest Melbourne Primary Health Network. And then there is an assessment that is um, that is completed um, uh, in terms of a mental health assessment. That assessment um, by that uh, professional, um, if it's a referral, there are the basic details are provided, and there is um, confirmation that the person that's being referred is informed and is expecting um, contact. Um, so once that occurs, the they will follow up and they'll contact that person. There's an assessment that takes place. It is actually supported by another Commonwealth um, initiative uh, in the development of, and it's called an Initial Assessment and Response Decisional Support Tool. So the IARDST is a, is a decisional support tool that has eight domains, four primary domains around um, symptoms, risk, um, past history um, and treatment. And then there are four contextual domains around um, context, impact, situation, uh, and so on. Each of these domains has a logic that crosses across the whole of the, um, the eight domains. And when a rating is put into um, this system, at the outcome, at the end of the, at the conclusion of the assessment, there is a proposed level of care uh, that is suggested uh, to be commensurate with the level of need that's been determined through the information that's been gathered. It's not a prescription. It is a, it is a support tool. The mental health clinician then needs to determine with that particular person about which level of care they think, based on the information being what's suggested, fits best for them. The Head to Help services are not supposed to replicate. Just if you go back to the previous slide, please, Gemma, they're not supposed to uh, replicate any other service that exists, they're supposed to be a conduit, a connector. Um, so with regard to the assessment levels, one and two would indicate that someone has capacity for self-help, guided um, learning uh, resources, they may be able to access uh, resources online. So that will, they might be guided and warmly supported to navigate the, um, the 
um, MPRAC resources, which we would strongly recommend. Um, they are the um, electronic um, professional mental health um, resources that are, are best evidenced. Uh, they've been developed or put through by the Black Dog Institute um, and people can readily access them. The level two is online digital support programs of which there are numerous. There are places like MindSpot, eHeadspace, Beyond Blue, uh, there are a whole range of them. So the, um, the Head to Help clinicians have um, a list of those services and they will warmly guide them to the, the type of service that best fits where somebody might just access online support counselling, they might uh, access uh, online treatment, psychological treatment um, services, or they might um, have guided self-help through that process. If they had to help us, uh, if the assessment determines that someone sits between a level and three to four level of need, then that fits within your mild to moderate mental illness um, that that aligns with the better better access to mental health care through the MBS um, subsidised um, services for psychological um, services. For those people that are eligible that fit within the vulnerability groups and have barriers to accessing those um, those services, they may well have a warm transition through to the PTS services that are commissioned through the Primary Health Network and funded through the Commonwealth Government. The, the immediate feedback is um, has been really positive. Um, the two providers in our region at this stage are Barwon Health um, and Ballarat Community Health, um, and they they run the the hubs or the head help services in in the region. There is a virtual connection to Great South Coast and Wimmera Grampians, and we are looking at strategies to extend these services uh, uh, where it could be viable. So happy to come back and talk uh, through it. Uh, but we are Great. trying to set up a single point of entry that will be of some assistance and practical use locally. Great. And so we'll have that that information. We'll pop in the chat. Of course, we'll disseminate it in the email. Um, there we go. And we'll disseminate it in the email tomorrow or Friday. And um, thanks. We'll, we'll see you again. There we go. There's that phone number now. And we'll see you again then perhaps in about a month, Mick. Thank you. And we can unpack that a bit further. I'll throw back to Deb now for the rapid fire Q&A. Hi, everybody. Um, just a couple of questions. Um, I am not entirely sure how many, time pe how many times people can access a payment if they get tested and uh, test positive. I believe it's more than once, but I have to acknowledge that I don't, I can't say um, with any clarity. Um, there was another question about whether or not I'm concerned about grand final weekend, people gathering, and whether or not this could represent a risk. In regional Victoria, you could have another family over at your home. I think given that we have zero cases in all of regional Victoria, the risk is going to be if people come from metropolitan Melbourne. But the risk within regional Victoria appears to be very, very small. So maybe I'm just an optimist, but I'm not seeing it as a big risk at this time. Um, the 10 mystery cases, what does that actually mean? I, you know, what it means is that they're still circulating infection and if there's 10 that we know about that are mystery, there's going to be some asymptomatic cases which are going to be a source of propagation within the community. So it could mean that the, that the actual number 
of mystery cases is more than that. Um, and then just hot off the press, there's five cases in Victoria today, just so you all know. Great. Well, well, let's bring you back next week then to talk about strategy. I really want to know how long we have to sit on these mystery cases and I'm keen to hear what our plan is around controlled suppression and elimination. So let's talk a bit of epidemiology again next week. Um, a PHN update, uh, there's a virtual AGM coming up next week. We'd like to just um, highlight. It's a video conference. Also, I just want to highlight a GP mental health uh, during COVID webinar, which is coming up on the 17th of November. Uh, with Dr. Kim Jenkins and Dr. Long Nguyen, um, also the link. Uh, so this is targeting GP stress and burnout barriers to help seeking self-care and stress management for doctors and how and where to access help. This series was brought to you by the West Vic PHN. I'm Bianca Forrester and I'm the GP facilitator for this series. I'd like to acknowledge the work of Gemma Misbach, Natalie Love, Fiona Quigley, Matt Dixon and Kate Graham for their work in coordination, support and contribution to this series. These audio catch-ups are produced by Gemma Misbach, myself and Jade Buller. Come along and join the discussions on Thursday mornings at 7.30am via Zoom. You can register on the West Vic PHN website by looking up Project Echo COVID-19. All sessions are RACGP and ACRAM accredited as a time-based activity and CPD certificates are available for non-GP participants. Thanks for listening and join us again next time.